Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, what is the status of the Commonwealth Games bid for Hamilton? What year? The U.S. vice presidential debate has taken place. Nowhere near the shenanigans of the presidential debate. And Canada is speaking up against hostage diplomacy. Too little too late? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. If you're not sure what to do for Thanksgiving, go back to what you did at Easter. And if you're still unsure, ask a kid who goes to school in a mask. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! There you go. Better late than ever. Never. Maybe not. Uh, it is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers, come back at the station. Uh, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air, week number 30. Feel free to join in the discussion. You'll find the commentary waiting for you on the website. Send us a note there, too. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Facebook and Twitter as well, and the phone lines are always open. All right, let's talk about Commonwealth bid, uh, this Commonwealth Games and the bid for Hamilton. Initially, uh, this was to coincide with the 100th anniversary of the initial Games. Uh, way back when, and which would have been 2030, and uh, obviously the date had been changed, and then there was a seems to be some sort of conflict with the World Cup and the province. So let's get an update on where this all stands. Bring in Lou Fraporti, uh, spokesperson for Hamilton 100 team, and is with us now. Lou, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Scott. So first, Lou, let's start with uh, with the actual date itself. When this was originally started, when when the whole discussion initially started, uh, this was centered around uh, the 2030, which would have been uh, the 100th anniversary of the Empire Games in Hamilton. Uh, what happened to that initial 2030 date? Is that still on the table or is that gone? No, the date's still on the table. Um, we'll have to go back a few years now because the community group that decided to pursue the 2030 Games the centenary celebration, uh, put a plan together in a bid that was ultimately put to council, then to the province and federal government, and all three levels of government uh, agreed to support that effort in principle. That, we'll call it a bid, um, was put together and based really on a, on a desire to have a celebration centered on the centenary with a very significant price tag associated with it. And the commitments that all levels of government had made uh, way back, it seems, forever ago, but but really it was at the end of last year and the beginning of this one, uh, were agreements in principle without any financial commitment that essentially put us in a position to compete globally for the right to ultimately host the event um, if in a few years' time the Federation in assessing bids from around the world decided that it should come to Hamilton. So uh, the, the final terms of it were never finally determined. Uh, the competitive process hasn't begun yet. The certainty of that is in doubt. And the price tag was about one and a half billion dollars for that event. And then, of course, the world changed. Uh, in February of this year, we were informed by the Federation uh, and Commonwealth Sport Canada that Hamilton's bid for 2030 was accepted and approved as the Canadian candidature, which is how they refer to it for 2030. And there the matter sat in anticipation of a global competition down the road, which would involve the city of Hamilton paying essentially to compete in that process. But in the same conversation, they invited us, given the pandemic and its effects, and because we had just gone through two years of bid preparation ahead of any other country's efforts and had secured government approval to consider whether we would move it up to be able to host it in 2026 on an entirely different basis, no bidding, no competition, a rewriting of all of the requirements to make it much less expensive and with resolve to make it centered on the recovery of the community. Would we consider that? And we began a process of exploring that with government, with a variety of stakeholders, uh, with individuals across the region, and then came to the conclusion a month later that we would try, uh, not without misgivings, not without an enormous amount of anxiety, um, but we would try to see whether it could be done for the purposes of helping the community along. And that's how we got here. So the reason the 2030 bid fell through, uh, or not fell through, but it is not as uh, uh, attractive as the 2026 bid is because of the costs due to the fact that it is the 100th anniversary. Well, in part... I, I'm still so, not understanding, Lou, why 2030 isn't there. 
It is there. In the event that 2026 doesn't proceed for any one of a number of reasons, lack of, of support municipally, provincially, or federally, or because the Federation uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, is not able to bring everybody together in a way that's satisfactory. 2030 hasn't gone away, but 2026 isn't a bid. It's an opportunity to work together to actually host the games. 2030 is a long shot that's going to require millions ultimately to compete as why let me let me interrupt there lou why is 2030 a long shot because it's the 100th anniversary and there's more money involved i don't understand why what's different between 2026 and 2030 there is there is a core group of countries around the world that have um, in, in part owing to their wealth repeatedly expressed an interest and hosted the commonwealth games australia the UK, India, all of those countries remain interested in what would be the most significant Commonwealth Games in 100 years. It's the centenary. It's going to be a massive event. There's no question about that. But the significance of that event uh, is significance for every country that would be a prospective host. And we know that there are several countries that are interested in, in the 100th anniversary that are not interested or can't deliver on 26 because of the pandemic. Also, there are risks associated with a variety of other multinational events. We've long understood that Canada may submit an Olympic bid for 2030. If Canada submits an Olympic bid for 2030, we will not be able to proceed with the Commonwealth Games in 2030. So there, there are a host of risks. Um, the bid is a bid in principle at this point for 2030. It is not a finalized bid for global competition, which would require a team of people um, to finalize the bid, put it in a form that would be sufficient to compete with other countries around the world in a bidding process. And those are the risks, the costs. Um, and here we have, we have an opportunity to help with pandemic recovery, bring a lot of money and resources to the region when it's needed most without cost. And that's so, so again, um, uh, it sounds like, and again, I'm just trying to drill down here and play devil's advocate, Lou, but it sounds like it, we don't think we can get the 2030 we can win the 2030 bid because there are other nations that are are bidding for this for the uh, for the centenary. Well, I'm going to say I think we can win. Certainly, what we've done in the last few months, working as hard as we have with the federation um, to attempt to help them and this community together, has earned us enormous goodwill and respect. We've got relationships with with leaders uh, at the federation level who have been incredibly supportive. We've become quite close to. I think that will help considerably in 2030. There's no question, but it is a bid. It's a competition. There is risk. There are uncertainties. Um, Multi-sport games in their entire future, as you've seen from the Olympics and others, are in doubt as a consequence of the pandemic. There are a host of things that would make 2030 potentially not happen. And of Yeah, course, but those, again, you know, you're saying that, that things like a pandemic could affect 2030, but not affect 2026. I mean, I think there's more chances of being over something like this by 2030 than 2026. Wouldn't those arguments apply to both dates? Of, uh, that argument, of course, would apply to both dates, right? But it may affect 2026 as it's affected the Canada Games and the Olympics. All I'm saying is that there are a host of risks. There are additional costs. We have a certainty for something that carries incredibly minimal risk for the city of Hamilton as this is being structured, an enormous benefit that would start next year. So uh, what, what you're saying, Lou, is there's a way better chance of getting 2026 than there is of 2030, and it's less expensive. On better terms, on vastly better terms. And, 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 better, just, terms be, and, better, and better terms because it's not the centenary. No, better terms because it's not a competitive bidding process. Better terms because the Federation, and this was an understanding that we had going in. So nobody it. else is going to bid for the 2026 if we sign up, we're in? Correct. And, Correct. and, this, was, and this was the committee that asked you to do this, to bow out of 2030, let someone else take that, but you're more than welcome to take 2026. Well, no, they didn't ask us to bow out. They asked us to take on the task of attempting to, to bring 26 to Canada, and in the event, for whatever reason, that didn't work out, either because we couldn't get government support or it was not otherwise possible, the 2030 bid would remain intact and we'd be in a position to pursue it. So there was no prejudice or harm or risk in making the decision, save and except for those of us who decided to expend the time and effort to attempt to do it um, without knowing what would happen. That was the only risk in this. As you know, the city of Hamilton is not paying anything for any of this. They've not dedicated staff to any of this. It's entirely volunteer-driven. 
And that's the risk. So to us, but not to the community. So, uh, and again, just let me clarify this, Lou. If yeah. we go through with this for 2026, we're the only bid. There's nobody else bidding for 2026? No, no there's nobody else bidding uh, because they were not invited to bid. The Federation, uh, has, has, I think there's been news around the world, um, has indicated to us that we have exclusivity over 26 in the event that we can put government support together and put a hosting plan together. And why do you think the committee, why do you think the committee's doing that? Like, why think about that? that? Yeah, because yeah, obviously Hamilton... Matthew, Scott, at the beginning of this, I'll try to do it again. One, we had already prepared a bid that was credible and strong and submitted it well in advance of other countries for 2030. So why would they not say that to every other country who has also supplied a bid for 2030? Why would they not say to other countries, why don't you try no for 26? No other country has. The, the cadence, the scheduling of bids for 2030 is such that we began the process in Hamilton well before any other country in the world or bid committee. That had to do with interest and need in this community to, to ensure enough time to secure support. But we started much earlier and we finished much earlier. And we, we were the only country, uh, the only host group that had finalized with government support a bid. And in having done that, the pandemic hit immediately at the date of the conclusion of the process. And three months later, the Federation, along with every other person in the world and organization, was faced with massive global disruption, uncertainty, risk, finding a host country to attempt to put a bid together for 26, and the clock is ticking in the face of the pandemic was and is brutally difficult. But here we had already done that. And so we were really positioned in Ontario, one of the wealthiest places in the world with an enormous amount uh, of, of resource. We did the Pan Am Games five years ago. We, we were ready and could deliver on 26 in a way well advanced from any other country. And that was the right. opportunity that they saw and it made sense. And so this, this is the most convenient for the committee of the games and a chance for Hamilton to get it uh, in 2026 with a, lo- a lot less cost. And a lot, a lot bigger impact at a time in which that impact is desperately needed, which was why we focused on a housing and we reduced massively the cost of the sports infrastructure so that more money could be spent um, for very significant community needs, especially for negatively impacted communities. And the work that we've done, which has been made available publicly on our, our, our site in terms of the hosting proposal, is, ent- is entirely focused on helping the city accelerate its pandemic reco- recovery efforts. So housing employment, skills training, experiential learning, support for indigenous communities, support for negatively impacted communities, support for tourism. Well, we certainly know the support that the games can bring. We don't need to go there, Lou. Uh, Lou, what I'm asking you is um, um, uh, Donna Skelly was on the show earlier on in the week and said 2026 ain't going to work because of the World Cup and their, their plans for that. Is there any other date other than 2026? Well, I think you probably saw the news as everybody else did, um, yeah. was a reference to, and the, the province has indicated. And of course, we had the benefit of a meeting with the premier who emphasized that while um, there is an opportunity for us to get FIFA to agree, which we've committed to do, um, to proceed with 26 in the absence of that agreement, um, there's a problem in attempting to do both. We understand that. And so 27, the province has indicated, would be a date it could absolutely get behind. And we've heard also from the federal government that it would support 27 uh, was not something that we can offer. It's not our games to to change. Um, but we're prepared to look at 27. Why? Because we desperately want the benefit for this community. And whether it's in 26 or 27, given why we want it, doesn't make a lot of difference. But it's a decision for the Federation to make ultimately. And it's something that they're going to be working on uh, with us in the province soon to figure out whether there is a path to doing that. And I have no answer as to whether that that's likely to happen. If there's a way of doing it in 27, or 27 and a half or 28, that would result in, in thousands of affordable housing units and thousands of jobs for Hamiltonians. We're going to try. Um, but clearly, well, again, I guess, the, you know, if you could do it in 2026, uh, 2026, why not 2027? It gives you another year. Uh, that being said, Lou, we got to, we got to, uh, stop it right there because we're out of time, but we will have you back. Lou Fraporti is with us, spokesperson for Hamilton 100, talking about the Commonwealth Games bid and, uh, trying to get the schedule nailed down. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about uh, the vice presidential debate last night. Uh, I can't even remember the last time I talked about a vice presidential debate. Normally, it's, oh, yeah, it's tonight, and that's, uh, you know, you get a couple of clips, and that's pretty much it. But considering what happened uh, in the debate with Trump and Biden, obviously lots of attention uh, put on this and a lot uh, calmer. I guess, uh, event than, uh, than that of the president and uh, Joe Biden. Here's a couple of clips of what went down last night. Let's talk about respecting the American people. You respect the American people when you tell them the truth. You respect the American people when you have the courage Which we've to be a leader done. speaking of those things that you may not want people to hear, but they need to hear so they can protect themselves. Stop playing politics with people's lives. The reality is that we will have a vaccine, we believe, before the end of this year. And it will have the capacity to save countless American lives. All right, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I hope you are too, Scott. Thank you. All right, what stood out in this debate for you other than uh, everything we're seeing about a fly on the head of Mike Pence during uh, the debate? Uh, is that the most exciting thing here? What did you take from all of this? All right. Yeah, thanks, Will. Um, no. <laughs> you tell him, Michael. You know, I, exactly. No, you know what? I really didn't care about the fly, and I don't really find it to be an important topic of conversation. I know some people then started to say, was it a CGI fly? It, it doesn't matter. What matters is that we actually had a real debate with substance. If In case you forgot what they look like, that was actually yeah. that we saw during, during the debate between Mike Pence and Kamala Harris. Um, I thought overall, they, you know, sure, they, they obviously answered the questions they wanted to answer them. They put spin on as they saw fit. They changed the direction of certain things as they saw fit. They certainly took control of this moderator, Sue Page, handled it as abysmally as Chris Wallace did for the first yeah. presidential debate, if not worse, because she just couldn't stop anybody from doing much of anything. And yes, I know that people were critical <clears throat> of the vice president for taking advantage of the time and going over the time, etc. I felt overall, although both of them did you know, quite decently in their own way, based on what you expect from participants of a type of debate, especially a vice presidential debate, I thought Mr. Pence overall won it. Um, not by an enormous margin, but he did it because simply... He's a very experienced orator. You know, he was a radio host for many years, so he understands these forums. And he's actually an experienced debater. Unlike you, I actually have commented and spent a fair amount of time actually analyzing vice presidential debates. Um, I certainly spoke at least a couple times back in 2016 when Mike Pence went up against uh, Tim Kaine, who was Hillary Clinton's running mate, for example. So I've looked at these things. And yes, I agree with people when they say, does the vice presidential debate change anything? No. Were there any momentous moments that occurred here? Absolutely not. Is this suddenly going to make some people either vote for Donald Trump or Joe Biden because of what their VP, can, the VP candidates or running mates said? No. But Mike Pence was sharper overall. His responses were more pointed. He actually has a mannerism, a tone, and an oratorial style, which is very, very strong. And I think a lot of people... Actually, a lot of people, you know, really don't look at it properly, and he seems to be very underrated that way. But I think we gauged a lot of it in 2016, or you should have, about how good a debater he is. And Kamala Harris did fine. You know, she she got in the points that she wanted. She got a few, you know, kicks of the can, which she enjoyed. She threw in a little bit of history. It was a little skewed, but anyway, at least she she was happy enough to get certain things in. But the problem is that she is inexperienced this way. You know, it doesn't matter how much experience you have in the judicial system, and she has plenty. It doesn't matter how much experience you have in politics. She doesn't have quite, a, quite as much as Pence and others, but she has a little bit. It's, you could just tell that he was stronger overall in terms of his, his language, his ideas, his concepts, structuring sentences together, and also just mannerisms. I thought that, unfortunately, we can probably talk a little bit about this, Kamala Harris spent way too much time worrying about facial gestures, you know, the laughing, the mocking, the shaking of the head. Yes, it's part of debate protocol. We all know that. But you can also do it too much. It could also be a point of overkill. 
And I thought with Miss Harris, she just did way too much of it. Once in a while, in little patches, it works out perfectly fine. If you notice, the vice president did it in patches as well. But when you're just consistently doing it, and, you know, it just unfortunately doesn't sell very well. And although I know, obviously, with CNN's audience, they were actually very happy and thought she'd won the debate. Unsurprisingly, with Fox's audience, you saw the exact opposite, where a lot of them thought it was smarmy. She just looked too assured of herself. It depends on, you know, what your ideas on or are, what your ideology is, and which side you just personally believe in or have faith in. But overall, I think that Mike Pence won it uh, comfortably enough. And I think it actually helps, at least if nothing else, his political career, no matter what happens on November 3rd, whether Donald Trump wins or loses, and into 2024, when a Mike Pence vice president or a former vice president, Mike Pence, would be a leading candidate for the GOP presidential nomination. Yeah, I think a lot uh, underestimated the ability of uh, Mike Pence to uh, to debate and hold his own. Yeah, yeah. I, no, I, I agree with you 100. percent I, I thought he held his own and 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 did well. All you know, whether you agree with his uh, with what he's saying or not, or or you want to fact check it, that's a different story. But I I think they did underestimate his uh, debating ability. Why do you think we were interested in this debate? Was it because the first one was such a fiasco, or is it the fact that these two candidates are quite elderly and there's a good chance that a vice president might actually be installed? Yeah, it's more the latter than the former. But yeah, I I think it's a little bit of both. I think the I think the first presidential debate it was a fiasco. It was a horrible affair. You know, a lot of people criticize it. I called it abysmal. I didn't declare a winner. I can't remember the last time I ever did something like that. But nobody deserved it. Nobody deserved to win it. It was just basically a free for all of yelling. Virtually nothing was discussed of any substance. At least here during the vice presidential debate, they talked about issues in a more complimentary fashion, a more even keel fashion. Nobody raised their fists, raised their voices. Sure, there were a little bit of facial gestures, body language, and all that, but that's to be expected. Overall, this is what, at least last night, this is what you expect a debate to be in politics. But yeah, I agree with you. I think the fact that Joe Biden and Donald Trump, due to their age, due to the way they handle themselves, and due to the insanity of the first debate, I think people were looking at this a little bit more closely because, as you know, the vice president is only a heartbeat away from the presidency. You know, you, you know the old line. I'm paraphrasing a touch. But so you're looking at potentially if something were to happen to them, you know, health-wise, or they became incapacitated for some reason, or whatever. Not that we're wishing it upon either man, but, you know, as you get older, these things can happen. Both Mike Pence and Kamala Harris are much younger, so they would be in the position to take over next if anything were to happen. So that was, that's what makes it intriguing. All right, so the last debate, uh, the VP debate last night, uh, more centered on policy, if you could say that, meaning less emotion and, and less personality. And yep. it did allow for both sides to to delve more into their platform and such. And sitting there, you can't help but compare Canadians to Americans. And, and I know it's apples to oranges. Yeah. But it, it's interesting when you took away all of the rhetoric and then you listen to the policies of both. You know, a lot will compare the Republicans to the Conservatives, the Liberals to the Democrats, mm-hmm. but man, I'm seeing an even wider gap than that. Uh, some of the things that uh, the Democrats were touching on, or certainly Pence was pinning them on, uh, almost sounded like the NDP as opposed to the Liberals. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there an issue, and, and, and is there an advantage to having two parties as opposed to three? Because it seems what we have is two polarizing parties, and you know, and as you listen to the town halls and, and you actually listen to people, Americans speak. They actually sound like Canadians. They kind of want what we have, and that's yeah. a mixture of both. So uh, is that getting lost here? Because, again, once more of of the policy came out, I'm listening last night, it's like, wow, this sounds like the NDP, not a liberal. Yeah, well, look, there's been a huge ideological shift in politics, in the in certainly the last five to ten years anyway. I mean, politics is evergreen. It always changes, and ideas change as well. I mean, we've seen changes even just in our country, Canada, that on the, the issue of free trade or reciprocity, whereas at one point in the 19th century, the Liberals and Sir Wilfrid Laurier were very much in favor of it, but free trade only came to this country because of the progressive conservatives and then Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. So things can change a lot, but yes, I agree with you that certainly in the case of the Democratic Party, 
it does sound like the NDP quite a lot. You know, talking about more state funding for for univers- or a form of universal health care, a green plan, which would cost an enormous amount of money, no matter what parts of it are or aren't ultimately used by Biden if he becomes president on November 3rd. Um, it's interesting how this is happening, that even though Canada and the U.S. obviously are very different in terms of the political system that we use, as we know the U.S. uses a presidential system, we use the Westminster model, we know that obviously um, the history of parties and of ideology in Canada and the U.S. have obviously been very different for a long time. Canada has a history of progressive policies. Even you know some of our old right-of-center parties used to certainly fall in line with certain things like universal health care and otherwise. And we still actually to this day believe in these things, even if though obviously modern conservatives would like to see different things added to it, including more of a private sector component, if we're just going to talk about health care, um, I think we can certainly say that the Conservative Party of Canada is different than today's Republican Party, yeah. and the Liberals today are different than the Democrats in the U.S., although, yeah. in fairness, Justin Trudeau is by far the most left-leaning prime minister we've ever mm-hmm. had in this country. It's not even comparable. You know, people used to say that about his late father. I don't even think that's comparable anymore. The son has definitely, you know, wandered way past him. And this recent throne speech has actually proven it. And, you know, you bring up an interesting point about two versus three parties. I mean, uh, in in the U.S., obviously, with two, a great divide in the middle. But even when we have three, we're still seeing that great divide in the middle. We just have two parties on the left. That's true. Well, we actually, you know, in fairness, because you're going to get calls about this, we do have more than three parties in this country. We have yes, yes. We have three parties. I stand corrected. These are now basically a major party, even though they're still sort of on the fringe over a lot of things. And the bloc has a lot of seats, even though it only runs in one province. Yep. Quebec. So we have a we are in a multi-party system, whereas the United States, yes, they do have third parties or smaller parties, not just Ross Perot's out for, from years ago. There are plenty of them that still exist. And there is a libertarian party in, in the United States, which does get a lot of support, believe it or not. Um, you're right, though. The U.S. is primarily Tweedledum and Tweedledee, the two-party system, as they used to call it. And we are a multi-party system. But interestingly, even though we have one historical tenant and the U.S. has another, they are starting to meld because, in many ways, the ideological shift I was talking about, the extreme elements of both sides flare up every so often and i think you see it a lot more in the u.s on the democratic side than the republican side but it's definitely on the republican side and we all know that and i think that obviously donald trump's presidency you know or his ideological component of trumpism which you know it's not a real term but most people have adapted it for him much like reaganomics like he sometimes has used the president's name to something um, Trumpism obviously is going to last long past Donald Trump because there are a lot of elected Republicans right now who espouse many of Donald Trump's ideas about politics, the economy, foreign policy, um, any any sort of issue of that nature. So I think what you're seeing right now is that Canada and the U.S. used to be have a very big political divide between the two countries. If anything, it seems to be narrowing because the extreme elements are sort of pushing the parties out in certain ways and following up similar paths to, say, Canada, which has obviously been out on, certainly on the progressive wing, it's been further out. And while our right-of-center parties don't necessarily resemble the Republican Party in the U.S., elements of it are there so it, it's fascinating to watch hmm, interesting uh let's talk about the next presidential debate can't let you go without asking you your opinion there sure. uh obviously donald trump still uh suffering from the coronavirus uh and you know the debate uh, the next presidential debate one week from today i don't know i, I would guess it's unlikely he would no, test negative happen. No, it's not it, going to happen. He's already said no. It's done. It's over. So anyway, my point is uh, they were going to have a virtual debate. Yep. Uh, is there any sense having a virtual debate? Donald Trump said he didn't want a virtual debate because they can cut him off at any time. Uh, should they just have this virtually if they can't do it in person? Well, no. He's already said he's not going to. He was on Fox Business News uh, Network today, and he directly said to the host, and I forget who it was, that he's not going to waste his time with something like this. There is no second presidential debate unless they can somehow twist his arm and get him to do it. It appears to be over because that was pretty direct to me. 
Um, but let's also pretty that. direct from the election commission that said you can't have uh, going to a public place when you're contagious. You oh, can't no. come in and infect they're, everybody. Yeah. So uh, so does this work in Donald Trump's favor or Biden's favor in the sense that? Uh, Biden wants to have a debate. He just wants to do it virtually. Obviously, an in-person debate is impossible because the president has tested positive and will still be positive, I'm guessing, in a Correct. week. No, he will. So, so at the end of the day, uh, even though the president has said he doesn't want to do one virtually, he would do one personally. The medicine dictates what we do here. Uh, is it not worth having? a virtual debate. I know he has said no against this, but is that worth doing if, you know, he can do it in person? Well, look, I mean, again, and also it should be noted that the debate commission as well in the United States has already said that if Mr. Trump or Mr. Biden wishes to drop out at any time, there's no legal or political obligation for them to be there. They don't have to appear. The classic example, very quickly, and it's been discussed a little bit about today, and I'm glad they pulled to it, was in 1980, where there was supposed to be a three-party debate between Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter, and John Anderson, and Carter pulled out of the first debate. Remember, that was the sitting president at the time, stating that he didn't want to have a three-way debate because he thought it would favor the independent candidate, Anderson. And in the end, quite frankly, Reagan made mincemeat of Anderson during that one debate. You can watch it on YouTube. It's there. And that actually brought in the second presidential debate where Carter obviously went against Reagan. This time around, we don't have a major third-party candidate. The libertarians are not strong enough right now, and no one else is running of any stature. So if basically one drops out, like Trump has dropped out, that's it. It's over. But yes, I understand the rationale for moving it or shifting it to a virtual debate. Because Donald Trump tested positive for the coronavirus, we think, if we follow the timeline, on October the 2nd, which means that with two weeks in isolation, that's October the 16th, one day past these, the planned October the 15th second presidential debate. So yes, he should do it, and I think that there are ways that it can help him, but there are also ways it can hinder both candidates. And part of the problem is that there will be obviously a lot of screaming and yelling that people, if the moderator of a second presidential debate that was virtual, hypothetically, was able to basically cut off their microphones or cut, off, cut them off if they were talking over one another, which undoubtedly would happen based on what we saw in the first presidential debate. I hate that strategy. I hate that style. So as annoying as the first presidential debate was, and I acknowledge that, that still, to me, is a debate. I dislike when the moderator can control that way. To tell them to stay on schedule, to basically reprimand them for speaking over one another, that's fine. But when you start interrupting, that's bad. Plus, there's always going to be the allegation of coaching on the side because the, the camera will only be focused on the person or the presidential candidate. Hmm. You can slide notes and do other things. I don't think it would happen in either case, but you know damn well that they would obviously try to allege it especially the Trump side, who suggested for a period of time in their usual conspiratorial fashion that Biden somehow had a hidden microphone on him and was being fed information. Wasn't true, (laughs) of course, but anyway, they said, you know, they say what they say. Oh, my. So, look, in the end, should it be done very quickly, Scott? Yes, they should do it. Does Trump have the right to pull himself out? Yes, and he already has. Is there going to be a second presidential debate? No, I don't think there will be. Are we on to at least the third presidential debate, which is tentatively scheduled for October 22nd? Yes, because Donald Trump would then be clear of his positive testing for COVID-19, and they could actually hold it, probably in a similar fashion to the VP debate, with planes of plexiglass 12 feet beyond, you know, between the two candidates and stuff like that. So I think that could be done. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harbour, talking about the VP debate last night. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You bet. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, we've been talking uh, quite a bit in the last couple of days in regard to the relation between Canada and China, and it seems as if Canada is starting to turn up the heat. Uh, and and this comes with the latest comment from our uh, defense minister. The Canadian defense minister calls out China for, uh, quote, hostage diplomacy and made the comments nearly two years after China first detained uh, former diplomat Michael Kovarig and entrepreneur Michael Spavor. Why are we all of a 
sudden seeing a change in tone in all of this. Uh, it was just a few weeks ago that uh, the Canadian government, although it had been dead in the water for a while, was saying that it was pulling out of trade talks with China. Uh, then, of course, uh, offering uh, those from Hong Kong trying to get out uh, that felt their lives were in danger uh, help for them. It appears that uh, that our position on this seems to be changing, even though the Michaels have been held for almost two years now. Let's bring in Gordon Holden, director of the China Institute, professor of political science at the University of Alberta, and is with us now. Gordon, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. It's a pleasure. Yes, I'm fine. Thank you. So, uh, Gordon, I'm sure you heard uh, my preamble there. Uh, are we turning up the heat? It seems that after being silent on this for a very long period of time, we're starting to see a bit of action, and Canada slowly change its attitude on the Chinese Communist Party to more reflected citizens. Is that accurate? I think it's fair to say that. I think there's also pressure from um, the Conservative Party in, in, in Parliament as well, which has taken a, a pretty strong uh, anti-China stance. I think there's there's political pressures domestically, but to be fair to the government, I think they uh, they perhaps have begun to realize that the softly softly approach hasn't been getting what they wanted. You could make the argument in the early stages that why do you want it more difficult to make it more difficult to get our two Michaels out of China uh, by bringing up a lot of other issues or by pressing China too hard? Uh, that hasn't worked, and now I think there is perhaps a recognition that they're not coming home soon and that there's no reason then to not be tougher on certain things. The defense minister certainly went further than the government had gone before in two ways. First, uh, he used the term hostage diplomacy. You know, that's been bandied about a lot. I think it's not inaccurate by any means. But the government is now using that. A minister of the crown is using that term. And secondly, what struck me in, the, in his comments that were made in, in, in Europe, Central Europe, was when he spoke about NATO, he talked about the need for NATO to be 360, uh, basically meaning not just focused on Russia uh, or even the Middle East, but with a, uh, approaches in all directions. And I think that was a not that subtle way of saying NATO ought to be concerned about security threats wherever they occur, including South, uh, South China Sea, etc. So that, to me... That will not have been gone by unnoticed by by Beijing. Uh, that will be seen as an unfriendly gesture by them. Um, will we see retaliation from China as a result of obviously this increased uh, attention and 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 uh, and, Can- and Canada calling out China more? Will we see some sort of retaliation as a result? Chinese tend to take their time to reach conclusions. That's not. A, it's a fairly small C conservative place in the sense of uh, they're not impulsive. They're not tweeting out what's on the top of Xi Jinping's mind at any given minute. So I think that, number one, there's always, almost always a delay, unless it's they view it as an extreme provocation. There's also some considerations for China. I believe that they've been trying to pry us away a little bit from the U.S. position, i.e. separate us from U.S. administration's tougher line on China. The comment has been highly critical of Washington, blaming Washington for the detention of Madame Meng, which, of course, is, is largely true, um, and then hinting that it's their fault, not necessarily Canada's fault. So I think that they will still play that game for a while. There will be a limit, however. It depends on what we do or say. There is a point where they will retaliate. Hard to know how. I don't see them going the detention arrest route again. I don't think that's got them anything except more trouble. Uh, but they've got lots of ways to hurt us, trade means, etc. Uh, they do need our some of our exports, but not all that badly. We're not that critical to them. But yes, at some point they could retaliate. I don't think we've crossed that line as yet. Our relationship's already in trouble. But the same thing for the relationship with the United States, Australia, and a few other countries. We've talked many times before about China doesn't really care what others think of them. That being said, there has been a quite a strong relationship between Canada and China in the past couple of decades. At one time, as we know, that was where all the opportunity was. Is China getting the impression yet that uh, the Canadians and in Canada, uh, that their image in this country, their image, especially with the uh, the, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, has has really diminished in the last little while? I think that Chinese officials understand that. Uh, their embassy reports regularly. They'll see in the polling 
Well, they've got some very capable people in their missions in Canada feeding that information back. The public in China is a different story because they have a state-controlled media. I don't think from my what I can see of the writings of what they call the netizens, the people who are active in social media in China, China's own social media system, that they really understand how unpopular China has become in Western countries at least. It's not true for the whole world. It's true for the West. And so I think, yes, the officials know it, the people at the top know it. I don't think the average Chinese person living in the People's Republic of China knows it yet. Uh, there was a story, I'm not sure if you heard this, uh, Gordon, out west, but there's a story uh, that broke last week about a, a large mansion north of Toronto in Markham uh, that had been run by a, uh, a prominent developer uh, with roots to the Chinese Communist Party, uh, uh, you know, a mansion sort of place uh, for a casino and, and human trafficking and such. Uh, and it was a very, very, very extensive operation that I think officials had known about for a long time. Uh, one of the people connected to this uh, apparently has a relationship or had a relationship with Justin Trudeau and that there's uh, donations that had been made. Is, is, is this government too cozy? with the Chinese Communist Party? Well, we should certainly not be tolerating illegal conduct in this in this country. There's, there's a limited amount we can do about our two Michaels within Chinese jurisdiction. And they have them and we want them back. There's not much we can do, it appears. But where there's illegal activity involving China in this country, uh, we ought to be following the letter of the law and let there be no doubt about it. I'm skeptical that the Chinese government wants to be involved in human trafficking. Uh, but they may not be aware of some of the people operating in their name or close to them. But there's no reason, absolutely none, why we should tolerate that sort of behavior. And uh, that ought to be stopped and a clear message sent. That's one of the problems in the past, perhaps, is that we haven't called out or taken legal action uh, where it's been necessary. We've expelled people or sent them back uh, where there's clear law-breaking. This is Canada. The laws of Canada apply. That should be clear to anyone living here, whether it's a Canadian citizen, uh, an immigrant to Canada, or someone visiting. That's the way it must be. Apparently, in the front doors of this uh, mansion was a flag of the Chinese uh, Communist Party um, and and influencers there that that were uh, trying to promote the culture and such. Are, are we uh, are, are we not seeing this for what it is for? Are they becoming, meaning the Chinese Communist Party, too involved in our politics, our health, our education systems uh, through situations such as these? Well, we, we don't want the Communist Party to have a role in Canada, the Communist Party of China. It's a political institution, huge one, 90 million members, ought not to have its tentacles reach into Canada. Um, flag of China per se um, doesn't give me a heart attack. It represents not my country, some other country. Where we have to be a little bit careful is on when you say the word culture. Um, If it's Chinese culture broadly, their music, their art, their their long history, um, a lot of, almost 2 million Canadians of Chinese ethnic origin, they want want to have their food, they want to have access to their uh, their music and to their background, the history, that's all fine. In fact, mm-hmm. Canadian, we need more young Canadians who know more about China. Even in the United States, the U.S. Defense Department trains hundreds and hundreds of, of U.S. college students every year in the Chinese language. Got to separate, in my view, culture from political influence. Mm-hmm. We ought to know more about them. We ought to have a cadre of people who can who understand China and can deal with them. Um, but uh, where it's the party of China doing political acts or illegal acts in Canada, absolutely not. And we ought to be vigilant. And CSIS and the RCMP ought to be on top of that. That being said, in China, those two things you just mentioned are not separate. They are very one, very much one and the same, no? There is the challenge. You're right. I mean, in every, every department, ministry in China, uh, the party secretary, even if that person is not the minister, is the one who's in charge, so yes, uh, uh, Chinese actions that are, I guess the illegality aspect is what is what bothers me. Uh, we can deal with a Chinese state enterprise, which may have a party cadre in it. They're buying our canola, or they're buying our wheat, hopefully, our aircraft. Um, but where they are using influence in our politics or conducting illegal acts, whether it's the government of China, the party, whomever, 
uh, clear signal needs to be sent. And it may well mean that we need to devote much more resources to tracking these things and make sure it's illegal so we can separate the acceptable, i.e. Chinese culture, and illegal acts. Uh, I don't want to think we can get to the point where we can't have understanding of China, history of China, mm-hmm. and the Chinese language be taught. Quite frankly, places like CSIS and DND need a lot more of those people and with that skill set. But illegal acts, party, government, anything that is uh, untoward or unacceptable, uh, yes. And China does have a tendency to do that. And they won't necessarily stop. From my long experience, it's a bit like crabgrass. You pull it up, it comes back again. And mm. we have to just resign ourselves that for a big, powerful country like China, they will, on occasion, or too frequently, uh, act illegally, and it needs to be stopped. But don't think that if you do it once and it'll be gone, it will reoccur, and you'll need to be go at it right again. Hmm. Um, we have uh, heard, uh, obviously, of, of how things have changed in Hong Kong and how China is slowly uh, tightening its grasp of Hong Kong and, and taking away liberties that have been there uh, for an awfully long time. Uh, 300,000 Canadians uh, living in Hong Kong. We're now hearing stories of how uh, Canada is now helping some of those get out, uh, including even giving refugee status if they are pro-democracy uh, uh, pro-democracy organizers or such, obviously their life is in danger. Are you surprised it's come to that point where, and will it come to the point where we ask these Canadians to come home? Well, it's not impossible. I think things would have to get a lot worse. Uh, quite frankly, those 300,000 Canadians are people who emigrated to Canada, uh, acquired citizenship, and then moved back. About a third right. of those uh, who came to Canada from Hong Kong moved back again, largely for economic reasons. Uh, they could be better paid there or have jobs they couldn't find here in Canada. I don't think the bulk of those are going to leave anytime soon. Hmm. They have pretty deep roots in the territory. It's their, um, They have family there. They have their job businesses they developed, etc. Um, I can imagine circumstances where that would happen and happen quickly. If you had a sharp deterioration between the U.S. and China, it looked like it might be headed towards war, that sort of thing would put people on the move. And the problem is sometimes they wait too late. But I think the bulk of those 300,000 are going to stick where they are, barring uh, further deterioration. The other group is a bit different. Those who might be refugees are the ones who are actively involved in planning and carrying out demonstrations in Hong Kong and who are now legally exposed. That group is what I think the, the refugee status is appropriate for. I don't think those numbers are going to be vast. I think they'd be in the dozens, perhaps in the hundreds. Um, but not in the tens of thousands, not certainly the hundreds of thousands. But there ought to be, and I think there is, serious planning being done in the government of Canada should we ever have a movement on the scale of 300,000. There wouldn't be enough hotel rooms or schools to accommodate this group in short order, even if many of them still may have roots within Canada. Our 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 conversation started uh, with the Canadian Defence Minister calling out China for hostage diplomacy. Where, as we just mentioned, uh, things are slow, slowly starting to change in Canada, and the heat is starting to be turned up against uh, China. What does that mean for the two Michaels? Well, unfortunately, I think it points to the fact that any solution to the two Michaels issues is is far off. Um, the key remains, in my view, that among, I know the Chinese deny this, and they certainly at this point, even if that among was somehow discharged from the court, or if the, uh, President Biden, if he would take power, were to drop the suit, and there would be a delay of months, maybe even a year, uh, before they come back. But that, to me, still, those two cases are linked, even if the Chinese usually, but not always, deny it. Um, they're, they're joined at the hip. And so without with Madame Meng still in Canada or sent to the United States, their status is is indeterminate and unlikely to get fixed, no matter how painful it is to say that, and particularly for, for families to hear that. Uh, any reason to believe that the Huawei CFO will not be extradited? It seems that's the direction it's going in. At one point, there was chatter as if that might be reversed. Where do you? What is your opinion of that? I think it's impossible to know with certainty because the premise has been clear that the Minister of Justice will not exercise the authority that he has to simply end the case at any point. He has the legal authority to do that. 
Uh, however, there's another review uh, before an extradition were to actually take place. Uh, at that point, it's impossible to know what the government will do. Uh, but it would be very unpopular in Canada, despite our concern about the Michaels. I think the more likely scenario is either that she's sent back, uh, which would lead to another crisis, both in Canada-U.S. relations, but also in U.S.-China relations, or the prospect of a deal between Beijing and Washington at some point, given her status. That, to me, can't be ruled out. But the new administration, or even uh, re-elected Trump, might make a deal at some point to say, okay, enough, um, we've made our point, we're going to find Huawei heavily or shut them out, we're going to let her go. And that would then break, begin to break the logjam. I can't exclude that possibility uh, because the uh, Americans are quite capable of making strategic deals with China regardless of the, uh, the desire of many people in the U.S. government to hold her to account. So the U.S. election could jiggle something loose, depending on the results? It's possible. I think that there's powerful forces in, in, that are pulling these two apart, Beijing and Washington. But I think there's also powerful forces that um, push them towards some sort of strategic compromises. Uh, just letting that relationship deteriorate to the point of war, for example, is not in the interest of either country. So I think that, that some sensitive issue like Madame Monk uh, which really, at the end of the day, doesn't do a huge amount for the United States. Uh, I think it's something that would be ripe for a deal at some point. Uh, what timing that would be, and whether it would be one candidate or the other in the U.S. election that would do it, uh, I'm not sure, but I can imagine circumstances. It's easier for them to do it when she's not in the United States custody. Once she's in, it doesn't become impossible. Uh, Trump has freed individuals from custody and other presidents have done the same thing. But I think it's easier for them to do it while she's still in the process in Canada. We'll see. Gordon Holden has been with us, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta, talking about Canada-China relations and the Canadian uh, Minister of Defense calling out China in the two Michaels situation, calling it hostage diplomacy. Gordon, thank you for the time as always. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.